You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. It's like the synagogue. Boys over here, girls over here. Sixth grade, up, and then there's boys in the back. Hello, boys. Okay, well, let's get started. The Lord be with you. That's when you say, and with thy spirit. Let's try that one more time. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great victory over death and the grave. And we pray that uh, you would drive us to your word this morning and that the spirit uh, that you promised to send into our lives, that he would speak to us even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, as I said, do you have the microphone? David, where's the microphone? Oh. Um, I didn't get the questions beforehand, but that's okay. He already has all the answers. Uh, right. And if I don't have the answers, I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, but um, let's see what happens. And if it's your question and you want to ask a follow-up, you're allowed to do that, okay? My experience in this is that y'all have just sat there and looked at me, and that's about all you've done. Uh, so if you want to have some interaction, it would be most welcome. Okay, Rachel. All right. Starter okay. questions. Is that a one? Andrew. Why do we wear our nicest clothes to church? Oh, that's a parenting question. Is that on? You're going to have to speak directly. Can you all hear me? Yes, there oh, you go. Yeah, it's, it's not that it sudden. Okay. Why do we wear our nicest clothes to church? Uh, I'm going to get an email from your parents on this one. Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, on the one hand, you know, people will say things, you know, for instance, if you were to go visit the President of the United States or you were to go down to Montgomery and there was going to be a reception for you at the governor's mansion, how would you dress? You'd probably put some nice clothes on. And why would you do that? To sh who said that? To show respect uh, for the person and their office. So in the same way, yes, that's one of the reasons why we would, we would dress up for church. But now... What if somebody walked in and they were wearing torn jeans, a t-shirt, and ratty old tennis shoes? What would you say to that person? Would you say, hey, you need to go home and change? This is a real life situation. What would you do? Do what most Adventers do and just ignore them, right? Yeah, <laughs> just, just let them sort it out for themselves. Well, I'll tell you a story. Uh, this happened in two instances here at the Advent about two, three years ago where we had a security guard who was with us and he's not here anymore, not because he was let go or anything like that, uh, but the security guards have been here for a number of years and you may see them walking around with the guys in the tan shirts and um, they don't, they're not a part of our congregation, but they've been around long enough to kind of get the lay of the land and they know how things work around here. And in one instance, uh, at the 11 o'clock, a man had come in from his farm, which is outside of Birmingham, and he was wearing kind of scrungy khakis and work boots and kind of a, a, a sort of wrinkly button-down shirt, and he looked disheveled. Now... I'll be honest with you, this man has a greater net worth than almost everybody else I know. But he was coming in off his farm, and the security guard saw him, and he stopped him and asked what his business was here at the Advent. Now, why did he stop him? Because of his appearance. 
Guess what God doesn't look at? Your outward appearance. That's not what it's about. Because we can put on our best clothes and still inwardly be dressed in rags. Uh, The garments that Jesus wants us to put on are his righteousness. Now that's not an invitation to wear grubby clothes to church, but what it means is that this man thought it was more important that he would come on Sunday morning and gather with his church family than to look so-called presentable. You get that? You understand? And so if somebody comes into our midst and maybe they don't have the nicest clothes on, one, they may be the nicest clothes that person owns. And so for them, they are dressed in their Sunday best. And so we ought never to judge somebody based on the way that they're dressed, but in fact should be given the greatest welcome and told, we're so glad that you're here and uh, come sit with me. Uh, and so that's, it's, it's, the, it, it's a hard issue more than it is what you wear uh, outwardly. Unless you're David Malone, who should wear a suit and tie every Sunday because otherwise you would look ridiculous. Okay. Awesome. Okay, next question. We're just diving right in. Why are there other religions if there was only God in the beginning? Uh, why are there other religions? Uh, because the human heart is a veritable idol factory. Uh, human beings... Uh, by our very nature, are always trying to figure out a way for us to get to God. Whatever that looks like. And there are things that we do that we might not even qualify as religion. So for us in our world, we might say, well, God will be happy with me if I do this in my life. Whether it's God will only love me if I get straight A's. Uh, God will only love me if if I behave in this way. God will only love me if, 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 if. Well, what you've actually done is you've fashioned your own religion. And I often run into people who say, well, I can't believe in a God who fill in the blank. Or the God that I believe in says this. Well, that's just the problem. It turns out that often God starts looking a whole lot like us. Uh, But the wonderful thing about God is he doesn't look like us. He's completely different from us. And praise God for that because even when we do fail, he loves us. He shows us grace and he shows us mercy. And the one thing that is different about Christianity than any other worldview or religion is that it's not about how we get to God, but Christianity says this is how God gets to you. And so as hard as you may try, and it's not as if, well, you try as hard as you can, And then God will pick up where you leave. But actually, while you're lying in the ditch, dead, what happens? God comes to you. He pulls you out of the ditch. He resuscitates you. He gives you life. And he's your shepherd. And he leads you through the rest of your life so that when the day comes, when Jesus either comes back or he calls you home when you die, you will behold the Lord God face to face. And not because you can say, I did all of this or this is who I am, but because this is who Jesus is and this is what he's done for me. Full stop. And so other religions in the world are an attempt to try to reconcile themselves to God uh, in a way that, quite frankly, doesn't work. Because there's nothing that we can do in order to get to God. If that were true, then why did Jesus have to come and die for us? That would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? You can do this on your own, but I'm going to send Jesus anyway. No, to do something that drastic means that the problem must be really serious. And it is serious. And that's why God comes and takes care of it himself. 
All right, next question. What do you say to someone who says God is not real? Right. God is not real. Well, for someone who's not real, they get awful argumentative about it. I mean, if somebody doesn't exist, why should you care? I mean, if they're going around saying God's not real, it's almost, I don't know, it, like an imaginary friend. I, it just, it's bizarre to me that people get all worked up about that. Um, so if somebody's coming to you and saying God is not real, what I would say is that they're struggling. Because it turns out that they're not really saying, outwardly they're saying God is not real, but inwardly they're saying, I'm afraid that he might be real. Because Paul tells us in Romans 1 that creation shows us that there is a God and that everyone is without excuse. The psalmist goes a little bit farther and further and says, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Right? So for someone to say God is not real or there is no God, the Bible reduces them to what? What would we say to them? They're a fool. Right? They're behaving in a foolish manner. They're denying that which is obvious even by looking uh, around. Now I wouldn't, if your friend comes up to you and says, I don't believe God is real, I wouldn't say, I pity the fool, or I would not say that you're being foolish, but maybe that is what they need to hear. But uh, what I would say is, why do you think that? Why do you think God's not real? And then ask them, what if he was? What would that mean? And this kind of piggybacks on the last question, because I would bet that the God that they don't think is real is a God of their own creation. And so when they say, well, I believe that God is vengeful, that he's, you know, sort of like a cosmic Santa Claus who checks who's naughty and nice, uh, he is trying to rob me of fun in my life, and the Christian life is all about rules, you can actually affirm to them and say, you're right, that God is not real. The God that you're, you're not believing in uh, is actually a figment of your imagination. It's a result of your own foolishness. And so what I would do then is that I would say, well, let's talk about this. And not just talk about it, but this would be a really good place to talk about things like Romans 1 and to read things like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God came in the world not to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That doesn't mean that God is not a God of justice, but this whole idea of a wrathful and vengeful God, that goes out the window in just two Bible verses, right? So that's what I would say to the friend who says that God is not real. And they're probably either have a bad idea of God or they're struggling with something themselves. Great. Okay, so kind of with that... If you walk away from Christ, do you still have salvation? And then also, do people that have never been told the gospel go to heaven? Okay, let's talk about this. So, um, because you've been in confirmation, you've not had the opportunity to be in my class on Hebrews. And we just talked about that last week, um, about turning your back uh, on Christ. The first thing that I would say about that is uh, Jesus tells us, well, let's just look at it. You have little Bibles in front of you. Let's open them up. 
Let's open to John chapter 6. Because I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to take God's word for it. And so John chapter 6, and I think it's going to be page 894. Is that right? 891. Oh, this one's a little bit off. Uh, 892. I take it back. It's 892 that I want you at. So it is right. Okay. Let's start reading at, let's read this together, starting at verse 37 on page 892. Let's read this in unison. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Stop. Now what did, what did Jesus just say to us? Did he say... If you come to me and you put your faith, trust, and you rely and depend on me, I might cast you out. I might lose you. You might slip away. There's no guarantee. Quote back to me what Jesus said. Read verse 37 to me. And I'll read verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What is Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying that if you are a Christian, that you can somehow uncouple yourself from God's grace, that you can go become an unchristian? No. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't struggle, that we don't find ourselves in periods of our life where we struggle with belief. I mean, I'm your pastor, and there are times where I think of things that God has said to me, and I'm thinking, that's a tough one. It's really hard for me to believe. And remember, this is one of the great prayers in the Bible. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. That's a good prayer to probably memorize. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And so Jesus himself... The living God, God the Son, has said to you and me this morning that there is nothing that you can do to get out of the grip of his grace if you're believing on him for salvation. Right? Am I, am I misinterpreting this? Am I reading something into it? No, that's what it says, right? Very plainly. Okay, so that's part one. Let's move to part two. Uh, well, actually, let's keep going, uh, part one. We'll get to the people who haven't heard about Jesus in a minute. Hebrews. Now, you don't have to turn there because this gets kind of um, tough. Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about the day of the rebellion in the wilderness. You may remember this when the Israelites were out in the wilderness and they were wandering around. And do you remember they got a little cranky? Uh, not just a little cranky, they were an outright rebellion to the living God. 
He had provided them with manna. He had provided them with quail. And what was their response? Oh, the cucumbers. I mean, you know things are bad when you're longer for cucumbers. That's what they want to go back to in the meat pots and things like that in Egypt. And actually on this great day of rebellion, Moses strikes the rock as God commanded him to do, and out came waters. But this is a really bad day in the life of the people of Israel because the psalmist refers, we actually sing it um, on some, uh, Psalm 95. We sing it on some Sundays during morning prayer um, uh, at 9 and 11. And so the psalmist looks back at it at this day and it says, do not harden your heart. And then you fast forward to Hebrews, which is 2,000. So the rebellion in the wilderness, 2,000 years later, Psalm 95 is written. And then 2,000 years later, the letter to the Hebrews is written. And what does the letter to the Hebrews say? It says, like the psalmist said about what happened 4,000 years ago, don't harden your hearts like the Israelites did. And here we are reading from the book of Hebrews 2,000 years later saying what? Like the author of the Hebrews said, quoting the psalmist who was going back to the time 6,000 years ago saying, don't harden your hearts. Which means that even as Christians, we have a propensity to harden our hearts. Especially to what God is doing into his word. And it doesn't happen instantaneously. In fact, when I read in Hebrews chapter 3, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. I think, well, my heart's not hard. But then why am I reading it? Why is the author of Hebrews quoting the psalmist who is talking about what happened on that day? Because all of us are prone to have hard hearts. And the thing about hard hearts is we don't know that it's happening until it's almost too late. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that even as Christians, you need to give yourself a heart check. Is your heart hardening to his word? Is your heart heart hardening to his gospel? Because as he says, this is chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is something you should put up in your locker. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Now what is the author of Hebrews saying? The author of Hebrews is not calling into question John chapter 6 that you can lose your salvation. But what he is making a point of, and I've been challenged by this recently, and I wonder what you think of it, is that in the Christian life, there's no such thing as stagnancy. I mean, have you ever felt that in your Christian life where I'm just sort of maintaining? I don't feel like I'm really advancing. I'm just kind of at a, at a pause point in my walk with the Lord. And the author of Hebrews says, actually, that may not be a possibility that there are only two directions in the Christian life, and that is you're either aimed toward Jesus or you're aimed away from Jesus. And the author of Hebrews writes 
what he writes because he wants to challenge Christians to actually think, what direction am I heading in? And as a Christian, in your heart, if you read this and you think, oh no, it actually accomplishes that what God wants to accomplish in his word, which is to make sure that we're headed in the right direction. If this fills you with a spirit of dread and drives you to Jesus, mission accomplished. But if you read this and you think, yeah, whatever, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Pfft, right, then you're in a really bad spot spiritually. And the way to get over this is what the author of Hebrews says is to encourage one another while it is still day. Do you ever see a friend struggle in life, in their Christian walk? Do you ever come to church and you wonder, you know, so-and-so used to come to church here and I don't see them anymore. I wonder whatever happened to them. What the author of Hebrews would tell us is that you should seek that person out and you should encourage them and say, brother, sister, come to church with me. Don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. But I want to encourage you on in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may be in a place of discouragement. You may be in the slough of despond, as John Bunyan said. But let's go to heaven together. Let's head in the same direction together and walk toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And then people who haven't heard of the Lord. I don't know. Just kidding. Um, people who haven't heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is God going to judge fairly? Yes. Okay. So when we get to heaven, is anyone going to say to the Lord, I have a problem with that. That's not fair. Wait a minute, you might want to reconsider this. That's one of the amazing things about what Scripture tells us when it's written that there's going to come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's everybody. Now that's not everybody saying, I believe in you, Jesus. I'm putting my hope and trust in you. I'm building my life upon you. But every single person from the beginning of time until he comes again is actually going to, to bend the knee and confess that he is Lord. Which means that even those who deny the Lord Jesus Christ will actually be able to acknowledge the justice that is being meted out to them. Even they will be without excuse. They're going to see the rightness of even their own condemnation. But when it comes to the people who haven't heard about the Lord Jesus Christ, we trust that God is just and that he is fair in his judgment. And so nobody's going to get away with anything, and God is going to judge with mercy and with equity when that day comes. But we also know that people are without excuse, as Romans 1 tells us. And so God is going to judge them, but we trust that he judges them mercifully. Now the other thing, though, is that if we really are worried about what happens to people who have never heard of the Lord Jesus Christ... Rather than sitting around and contemplating what might happen to them, I hope that God lights a fire in your hearts to go and tell people of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his great love and of his great salvation. Because that's what God calls us to do in our own lives. And so if you're worried that somebody has never heard about Jesus, you should tell them. You should tell them. And not in a way of, uh, that is in their face, 
But it may be, believe it or not, there are people that are in school with you who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what leads people to have these misconceptions about God and to say, I don't think God is real. Uh, Well, the reality is, is that on the third day, Jesus got up out of the grave and that he now reigns in heaven. And there's going to come a day where he will come again. And he's not going to come as a little baby, but he's going to come as a great and conquering thing. And he will reign for eternity and will reign with him. And as the author of Hebrews would say, we're going to heaven and we want to take as many people along with us as we can. And so actually telling people about the Lord Jesus, it may make them feel condemned, it may make them feel judged, but it's the most beautiful news that the world has ever heard. And we want people to have that eternal life, both in this world and in the next. Awesome. Okay, next question. Yes. If God can do anything, why are there still awful things happening in the world? If God can do anything, why are there still awful things happening in the world? Well, this goes back to the problem that we have with sin. Um, Now, when y'all were growing up, who taught you how to misbehave? Yeah, it came kind of naturally, didn't it? (laughs) You you didn't need any help on that one. Uh, Now, your friend certainly helped you with some creativity and figure out different ways of doing things. Uh, But the problem that we all have is that we're all terribly self-interested. And we pretty much do uh, whatever it is that we want to do uh, in our own lives. And in fact, even when our parents tell us to do the right thing, often we find ourselves wanting to do the complete opposite. So when your parents say to you, you need to go clean your room, does your heart leap with joy? And do you skip off to your room and you whistle and you sing as you clean your room and say, this is so life-giving and fulfilling. I'm so glad my parents told me to go clean my room. Is that kind of how it goes down? How does it go down? Just be honest. I know how you feel. When they say you need to go clean your room, what is the first thought in your mind? No. (laughs) Right? And then you go in the room and you sit down on the bed and you cross your arms and you look at your room and you see that it's a total and complete mess. And yet, what? You still don't want to clean it. And the only reason why you're cleaning it is so that your parents get off your back. And when you're done, you feel like you should get a trophy, right? I've done it. Or are you one of those kids like, I, by the way, mom, dad, I took out the garbage. Right? My children now bargain with me and they want prizes for things that are part of normal human existence. Dad, I'll get my shoes out of the hallway if you promise dessert tonight. I'm like, let me tell you what's going to happen here. <laughs> Right. Well, so because there's this thing inside of us, it's called sin. It's a condition that we all have and we struggle with. And that's why bad things happen in the world. This is why people rob one another. This is why people kill one another. This is why there are wars because of the human condition. And God has provided a solution for that. What is God's solution to the problem of sin in the world? There it is. There it is. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory over death and the grave. And while we live in this world, which is a total mixture of sin and righteousness just like us, we still catch glimmers of hope, don't we? Like parents actually catch their children doing sweet and kind things for their family. 
that we catch one another doing these acts of kindness to one another. We see miracles and certain wars coming to an end or things like the reconciliation that has taken place in Rwanda after the genocide 25 years ago. We catch glimpses of it. Why C.S. Lewis talked about it is living in the shadow lands. We catch little shadows of it. But there's going to come a day when we see the real thing when Jesus comes again. And so that's why for Christians we long for the Lord Jesus to come back because we want him to put an end to all these wars. We want him to put an end to sin in our hearts. We want to love him with everything that we have in our whole being. We want to love our moms and dads and our brothers and sisters most of the time with everything that we have as well. And so that's why bad things happen even though God is on his throne. Wonderful. Okay, speaking of heaven, <laughs> did people before Jesus go, go to heaven? And then another question that's really similar is before Jesus died for our sins, people died and went to hell. Or um, When he died for us, did they go to heaven or did they stay in hell? Okay. All right. Uh, that's a really good question, but I wonder if it wouldn't be more helpful to, I'm going to answer it, but what happens when you die? That would be of more interest than me, than who died 2,000 years ago, because it's pretty clear the Lord has sorted that out, right? Um, but the Old Testament understanding of death is that you actually do go to a place that is often referred to as Sheol, which is a place for the dead. <clears throat> and it seems to be kind of a holding place uh, until uh, the Lord Jesus comes and he frees the, the saints of the Old Testament. But at the same time, we see in the parable that Jesus tells of Lazarus and Dives. Do you remember the man? He would beg at the rich man's gates and the dogs would come up and lick his wounds. And every day Lazarus, I mean, uh, uh, the rich man would walk by Lazarus and not even give him the scraps from his table. And then they both die and Lazarus goes into the bosom of Abraham He's with the Lord, and Dives, the rich man, who we don't know his name, he goes down uh, into uh, hell where there's eternal torment. Uh, but even then, there seems to be an ability for the rich man to speak to Lazarus. <clears throat> and so, let's not worry about the rich man so much as what we know about Lazarus are a couple things. One, he's with the Lord. Two... He, uh, he's not able to go back. He's not able to go over to the bad place where the man is. He is where he is. And even if he wanted to give a cup of water to the man who's begging for it, it would be impossible, is what Jesus tells us. But let's talk about when you and I die. What happens? Well, what the Bible tells us is, one, precious in the, this is from the Old Testament, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so when we die, God is not unfeeling toward us. It's not you go into some sort of blackness or oblivion. You don't just fall asleep into nothingness. Uh, but also what we find out in the Bible is that um, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And so if you're dead, you're absent from your body, but where, whose presence are you in? The Lord's. Right. So your soul is separated from your body because where's your body? It's in the ground. 
right? Your mortal remains are in the ground, but your soul is with the Lord Jesus Christ. But did you know that the Bible tells us that heaven is not our ultimate destination? That's not where it ends. Heaven, Jesus elsewhere, when he's talking to his disciples toward the end of his ministry, he says that in my Father's house are many rooms. Do you remember that part? And I go to prepare a place for you? Well, what Jesus is actually saying, the Greek there is actually a word for way station. It means that that's not the final place, that it's a transition point. Which means that those of us who die in the Lord... Our souls are with the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't get a harp. You're not sitting around on the cloud. You're actually in the real presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're beholding face to face. And it's a real existence. It's as real as you and I are real right now. But it's separated from our body. But when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, what will happen? Our souls will be reunited to our bodies and we will get up out of the ground. And we will stand before him, both the living... That's why we say in the creed that he will come again to judge who? It's kind of fun. It sounds like a movie title, The Quick and the Dead. Uh, But the living and the dead. Because when Jesus comes back, there will be people who have never died that will be walking this earth. But those of us who have died, and maybe Jesus will come back in our lifetime. I pray it's so. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That's a good word for you. But we'll be reunited to our bodies and we will stand before him. And there will be a final judgment. And those who are putting their trust in Jesus Christ and his shed blood and hoping in his resurrection, we don't go to heaven, but God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. A new Jerusalem. That actually this earth that we live on right now will be redeemed. And we will live for eternity with him. That's the ultimate destination. That's what happens when we die, and what we look forward to when Jesus comes again. And we're now out of time. But what's the next question, just for fun? Well, okay, that was a lot on heaven. If we're out of time, I'll ask one last fun question. How about, yeah, let's do that. Did Adam have a belly button? Uh, I don't know. Well, I'll tell you what, when you get to heaven, you'll find out, right? You'll, you'll find out the answer to all these questions. And, um, and you know, Adam's going to be like, you don't have to ask. I know what you want. You know, and he'll, you know, do whatever. Um, so, um, I, I, you know, but the thing about it is, is that I do think that God works through nature. He does that. And uh, because we have a belly button, because of an umbilical cord, because of the need of our mothers to nourish us, Adam didn't have that. And so I, I think it's worth, I think that, that Adam probably doesn't have a belly button. Weirdo. Weird. He probably got made fun of for it. Probably. Okay. All right, y'all. Let me pray for you. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us inquiring minds. And Lord, that we don't have the answers to everything, but Lord, you do. And so when we have a hard time making sense of what your word says, Lord, that we would recognize that the problem is with us and not with you. For you speak clearly, but the sin in our hearts and in our minds gets in the way. And Lord, I pray for these sixth grade compromands, Lord, that they would be so filled with your Holy Spirit that they really would take the world for your son. That even now, they would be equipped to be heralds of your gospel. And that as young as they are, that they would understand what it means to be fully grown in the Lord Jesus 
And as they stand and confirm their faith in you before the congregation next Sunday, that you would assure them of your love and goodness, but also that they have a church family that loves them and is spurring them on and encouraging them on to not harden their hearts, but we're on our way to heaven together. And let's go toward Jesus in his name. Amen. See, I really do like you. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Rachel. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.